Thanks, worship team. What a great job of leading us into the presence of God. And uh, much of what we sang this morning talks about our love for God. What we're going to be talking about um, this morning is, is his longing for us and the way that he longs for us and uh, um, the way that he uh, pursues us with intensity when we're away from him and the way he receives us with joy. Um, I'm Gary Post. If you don't know me, I'm the associate pastor here. Mark and Lori are away uh, for the weekend. And uh, I want to thank those of you who have been uh, praying for my wife over the, the past week. Uh, as some of you know, if you're on the prayer line, you know she broke her hand last Sunday night. And so she's been, you know, we've been through surgeries and uh, rehab and several casts. I, can't, I lost track of how many casts. But uh, she, she certainly knows. And uh, we want to thank you for your prayers and uh, uh, brought over a couple meals and, and uh, all of that. So uh, we certainly appreciate that. Jean has a word of advice for you. Uh, she broke her hand while she was playing catch with our three-year-old grandson. And so the advice would be that uh, if your three-year-old grandson says, dive for it, Grandma, don't. <laughs> Maybe you could wave your cast, Jean, so people would, yeah, there you go. Yeah, that, that's, uh, that's evidence that she's not just uh, eliciting unwarranted sympathy. She actually did break her, break her hand. Well, this morning we're going to be uh, talking about the, the parable of the prodigal son. And um, it's important that you have a, a study guide here this morning. There's a lot of information that will help you follow the message. There's some ad- additional information in there as well. If you, if, you didn't, uh, if you missed that on the way in and you don't have a study guide, would you just stick up your hand and there's somebody who will bring you one. Carol's in the back here. She'll, she'll gladly bring you one over if you, if you happen to need one. It'll help you in, uh, in moving through the message this morning. And also it, it contains some of the quotes and other resources that, that I'll be using. So I think you'll like having one. Also, while I'm at it, let me just mention that I have some resources on a table in the back. Some of the books that I've quoted from and uh, that I list in the book list here are actually available for sale in back. Because I wanted you to be able to go further, take what we talked about this morning and, and take that next step in, uh, in uh, perhaps uh, preparing yourself as, as a parent or as someone else who, who um, is praying for a prodigal in, in their lives. We're going to be approaching the parable this morning. Uh, and I think there's something for everybody here. You know, when you do inductive Bible study, that's an intimidating sounding term, but all it means is that you're asking three questions about the, the passage that you're considering. The first is, what does it say? In other words, who, what, when, where, what's happening there? The second question is, what does it mean? That is, what does it mean in the, in the context in which it was written? How would the hearers of Jesus' story, in this case, have heard what he says? So we'll talk about that. And then thirdly, what does it mean to us? That's the third question. What application can we find? And so I think there are some, some very practical things for, uh, for parents of prodigals, and prodigals aren't always kids. Uh, prodigals are away from home or, or people who put distance between themselves and, and God. And uh, some of them are, are uh, spouses or, or they are... Uh, friends or other loved ones who are prodigal, who are just away from home in terms of their relationship with God. And sometimes, uh, if we're going to be honest, we're, we have our prodigal moments ourselves, don't we? Uh, where we wander away for an hour or a, a day or, or a week or, or longer. And God longs to bring us back. That's what this parable is 
about today. So, um, let me begin with a, a story that happened a few years ago in North Carolina. It seems that a local police car was trying to catch up with a teenage boy in, in a speeding Triumph Spitfire. Now, everybody who remembers what a Triumph Spitfire looks like, would you raise your hand? Yeah, you're all dating yourselves. You know that, don't you? Yeah. Triumph Spitfire, it's a, little, it's a little sports car. In my mind, it's green, but it probably wasn't always. Uh, just as they both came close to the family property, the brash young man pushed the button to close the security gate, managing to squeeze through just in time, and then watched with delight as the gate closed in front of the pursuing police vehicle. Riding on the thrill of adrenaline, the boy ground the car to a halt in front of the house, ran inside, and dashed up to his room. But soon the booming voice of his father called him down. The young man met his dad in the study where his father's grim stare removed any remaining thrill. I've just spoken with the officer at the gate, began his dad. He's on his way up. And if he wants to arrest you, son, I'm going to support him. Well, that boy was young Franklin Graham. And his father was world-famous evangelist and advisor to presidents Billy Graham. In later years, Franklin Graham would describe his years as a prodigal son in rebellion against his parents in his own book, Rebel Without a Cause. He recalls sitting around the table that night uh, with his dad and a couple of police officers, and the discussion revolved around whether he would spend a night in jail that night. A few years later, he was reading the Gospel of John in a hotel room in another country, and he read that Jesus told Nicodemus in John 3, then he needed to be born again. And he recognized that that message was for him too. That night he prayed to receive Jesus Christ as his Savior and Lord, and his life began to change. Today he travels as head of Samaritan's Purse. You may have heard of it. It's a worldwide Christian relief organization that meets the needs of thousands of people every year who are in crisis in the name of Jesus Christ. And Franklin preaches to tens of thousands of people. But his mom also weighs in. Ruth Graham, great woman of God, one of her books is in back. But in the, in the introduction to the book, Prayers for Prodigals, Ruth Graham talks about life as Franklin's mom. She says, God blessed me with two prodigals. I use the word blessed because they're a gift, just like every child. Prodigals are an especially precious gift because they teach us much, including patience, the depth of our own need for forgiveness, and a continual dependence on God in prayer. When our children bring us to our knees, we're in the best position for God to help us. Some of God's best lessons are his most challenging. When we come to the end of our own strength, we learn to rely on his. Through prayer, he takes us by the hand, and leads us to fresh places of grace that we never would have seen if the challenges had not come. There are some of, those, some, of, some of us here as parents who can relate to that. We've lived it, right? Well, today's focus is on the story of the prodigal son in Luke 15, also called the lost son. That's probably a better title for it because in this, in this uh, parable, Jesus explains what it means to be lost, that is, to be away from God and, and how God longs to bring us back and how he rejoices 
when we come back to him. But the word uh, prodigal is not in Scripture. You may know that. Uh, The word prodigal really means reckless or extravagant or wasteful. And it can have a positive or a negative connotation. Uh, Reckless spending, for example, would be what the prodigal son did in the far land. Uh, But uh, extravagant grace is what God shows us in, in response as an evidence of his love. So the context of the parable here is important. It's, it's important to understand who Jesus was talking to. And we see that in John 15, 2, uh, where he describes two groups that were at the opposite ends, really, of the social spectrum in Jesus' day. Uh, tax collectors and sinners on the one hand and the Pharisees and the scribes. Verse 2 says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. Jesus was a magnet uh, for people in trouble. And tax collectors and, and the general category of sinners, as the Pharisees would have referred to them, were, were drawn to him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and, and eats with them. As you know from reading the Gospels, uh, Jesus attracted those who were rejected by the religious establishment of the day. Tax collectors, prostitutes, and, and other assorted sinners, as they would call them, because he projected grace and love and compassion for everyone around him. The Pharisees and the religious leaders, the other group that he was speaking to at the, at the moment here, uh, prided themselves on, first of all, their, their Jewish heritage. They were part of God's chosen people. They were Jews. And secondly, uh, they prided themselves on, on their real, uh, rigid adherence to the ceremonial regulations in the, in the Jewish law. Uh, that is their external conduct. And, and they, one of those uh, pieces of that conduct was that they took pride in, in the fact that they didn't associate with the kinds of people who were drawn to Jesus. They didn't eat with them. They didn't talk to them. They didn't go to their house. Uh, that was part of their, their supposed righteousness. Well, Jesus uh, responded to their complaint in John 15 with, with actually three parables. You see, if you look at the 15th chapter, there's a parable of the lost sheep, the 90 and 9. There's a parable of the lost coin. And then there's a parable of the lost son. And that's what we're going to be focusing on today. And, and Jesus did that in order to respond to their complaint. And, and to, he, he wanted everybody to see, everybody in that whole audience to see uh, just how God pursues us when we're lost, when we're, when we're apart from him how he pursues us, and how he rejoices when we come back to him. And that's true whether we're away for years at a time or, or just during those prodigal days or weeks or, or hours when we distance ourselves from our Father. Well, let's read about it in, in Luke 15, 11 through 32. I'm going to be reading out of the ESV here, same one as in, in the uh, pew, if, you happen to, if you'd like to follow along. Or uh, it'll be up on the screen for you. Starting at at verse 11. And he said, There was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. There he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he'd spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country. He began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. 
And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand. Put shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I've served you and I've never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, he didn't even call him his brother. He said, When this son of yours, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, came, you, you, filled, or you killed the, the fatted calf. And he said to him, Son, you're always with me. All that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. First of all, let's look at the the younger son's demand. He said, give me the share of the property that is coming to me. Some of you may know that Jewish law provided for the division of property between heirs, usually upon the death of of the father, with the eldest son receiving twice the amount that anybody else would in the, in the family. And the Mideastern culture, here's another piece of the context, the Mideastern culture at the time revered elders, and especially parents. And, and uh, Jesus' hearers would have been shocked and dismayed by the younger son's disrespectful demand. And it would have been equivalent to, in that culture, it would have been equivalent to wishing that his father was dead so I can have your money. That's what he was saying. Because it demanded not only the the division of the property in this case, but also the right to dispose of it. The the son said, give me what's mine, I'm going to convert it to cash, and I'm out of here. That was was the, the demand. Usually a father, even if he divided his assets prior to his death, Uh, he would have the right to control and to benefit from those assets uh, legally uh, prior to his death. But that didn't happen in this case. The the father reluctantly, perhaps, uh, but graciously granted his son's demand. But the whole situation would have scandalized those people who listened to Jesus' story. It just would not have happened. It was unforgivable in their culture. So that the young man gathered all he had went to a far country and squandered his property in reckless living. When you consider that much of this property was probably in the form of land or real property or things that were difficult to dispose of it, uh, he probably sold off land that had been in his parents' family for for, uh, decades, for generations perhaps. Uh, Sold it off, converted it to cash, 
and took it with him. And, and it's an indication of his self-centeredness and his indifference to his father's feelings and his father's position in the community and the disgrace that it would bring on his father and the, the depth of his willfulness and the depth of his rebellion against his father. Now here's a question for you. Was there, uh, what was there to cause the younger son to rebel against his father? Do you see anything in his father's conduct here that would cause the younger son to rebel against his father? No, we, we don't, do we? I think that's by design. One of the things that, that we can learn from this parable is that it, it wasn't poor parenting. You see, Jesus positions the father in this story to represent God in the way that he deals with us. So God was the only perfect parent in all of history. And what we're seeing here, part of the message here that, I, that is intended to be an encouragement to parents is that you can be the perfect parent and still have some, someone who chooses badly. You can still have a son or a daughter who chooses badly. You can be the, the perfect parent and still have a, a son or daughter who is a prodigal. That should be an encouragement to those of us who are parents who have had kids who have made bad choices. The younger brother in this case deliberately chose the allure of sin and wild living over life with his father. Uh, Augustine was no stranger to that. Augustine was one of the church fathers of the, uh, in the 4th century. But uh, Augustine was not always a church father. He lived his life much like, much like the younger brother here in wild living, reckless living, um, consuming his, uh, his resources with prostitutes and, and so on. And, and uh, he came to faith largely based on his mother's prayers and God's grace. It, it's a great story. But what he says, he, he has an in-depth understanding of why this young man left because he did the same thing. He said, it is not reason which turns the young man from God. It is the flesh. Skepticism, that is, skepticism as to whether or not there's a God, Skepticism, but provides him with the excuses for the new life he's leading. I meet a lot of young men and women like this. Calling yourself an agnostic is a convenient excuse for living in the way that you want to live in, in, uh, in opposition to God. It, uh, some things never change. James provides additional insight as, as to how the progressive slide into sin occurs. Uh, but each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it's conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. So here's lesson number one from this parable. Stop blaming yourselves as parents. Even perfect parents have prodigal kids. If, if you've been the parent of a prodigal, guilt is very often your first stop, isn't it? Uh, guilt is the gift that keeps on giving, as I like to say. And uh, we ask ourselves, what could we have done differently as parents? And, and we somehow attribute the blame to ourselves uh, because our kids made a choice that we wish they, they hadn't. Uh, when I ask, uh, our kids are all in our 30s, uh, all in their 30s. Um, and when I asked, uh, one of my sons was going through a problem, that, uh, an issue that he was trying to overcome, and I, I asked him, uh, what could we have done differently? And he, and he said, Dad, uh, it wasn't anything that you and Mom did. He said, I simply made bad choices. 
and bad things happened as a result. Now I'm making better choices and, and good things are happening. Carol Barnier, a self-described prodigal from a great Christian home, she says, I had wonderful Christian parents. I had a great upbringing. I, I knew the truth. And uh, my dad was a pastor, and he was a brilliant and wonderful and compassionate man. Uh, but she says uh, she left the faith at one point in her life as, as a college woman. And, and she was 13 years as an, as an atheist, was a member of the American Atheist uh, Party for a while. She writes about overcoming her own guilt over her own son's rebellion, her own son's uh, prodigal uh, choices. She said, it, it had never occurred to me that my son had the capacity to make a bad choice in opposition to good parenting. When I stopped claiming the guilt that I hadn't earned, it changed many things for the better. One thing we can learn from Jesus' parable is that even perfect parents can have kids who choose badly. And, it, and it's a mistake, folks. There's this subtle judgment sometimes that we use on other people. Uh, if uh, somebody's uh, kids have gone sideways, uh, we somehow uh, believe that it's because of something they did. And, and maybe that's not said in so many words, but we conclude that in our hearts. There's a certain self-righteousness. And, and I can relate to that because when my kids were little, I, uh, I felt the same way. Well, if we check off all these boxes, if we do all the right things, then it's automatic. You know, it's a formula. Our kids will turn out okay. Well, that's not always the case, is it? We, we know that, that uh, sometimes kids make bad choices, and that's one of the lessons from this parable. So enter the pig pen. Uh, beginning in verse 14, when he, that is the younger son, had, had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to, be, uh, to one of the citizens that, of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. Now here's a key phrase. But when he came to himself, he said, when he came to himself, he said. Now Jesus could not have painted a more disgusting picture for his hearers on this day. A Jewish boy up to his knees in pig poop. Pigs were considered unclean animals anyway. And, and uh, this would have been the worst possible job that Jesus could have described for a young Jewish boy. It was absolutely despicable. But notice the effect of the hunger and the pig pen on his attitude. Scripture tells us he came to himself and then he said. Uh, another version says he came to his senses. Lesson number two you can't save your prodigal child, spouse, parent, or friend. Only God can. Only God can. It is not a do-it-yourself project. But if we pray, God will orchestrate circumstances in our loved one's life to bring them to a place of brokenness and repentance that will ultimately lead them back to him. And our job is to release them to God uh, to pray for them continually, to wait patiently on God for him to act in his timing. Folks, sometimes the temptation is to rescue uh, a prodigal, <clears throat> and that can actually interfere with what God is trying to, <clears throat> to do in their lives. God is, God is uh, trying to accomplish something in their lives, sometimes through self-inflicted hardship and pain. 
And sometimes God knows what we don't. And that is exactly how much time they need in the pig pen. God assures us of answered prayer. 1 John 5, he says, This is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. This is a parent's prayer. There is nothing more in God's will than bringing your prodigal to faith in Jesus Christ. God is much more concerned about it than you are even. And, and he will act when you pray. Proverbs tells us, you can also be very sure that God will rescue the children of the godly. Pray that promise back to God for those that you love. Well, the running father. Notice that in this story that the father takes the initiative to demonstrate unconditional love and grace and compassion. Verse 20 says, And he arose and came to his father, that is the younger son, came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father was looking for him. While he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. Before the son could say a a single word, before he could do his little elevator speech, the father ran and embraced and kissed him. Notice there are no recriminations, no lectures, No time in the penalty box, just overwhelming grace and love on the part of the Father. Folks, that's how God pursues you and me. Again, this is is, uh, what would have shocked Jesus' hearers uh, for two reasons. Number one, Mideastern patriarchs didn't run, ever. They didn't run. Uh, But what Jesus wanted to vividly illustrate here is the intensity and the passion with which God pursues us and how he receives us with joy when we turn back to him. The hearers, too, would have been astounded by the radical extent of this father's unconditional grace and love. It wouldn't be anything that they would have expected uh, for a son who had dishonored his father in a way that in that culture would have been unforgivable. Lesson three, we need to demonstrate the same unconditional grace and love toward the prodigals in our lives that God has toward us. After all, Romans 5.8 tells us that uh, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, right? He, he didn't wait for our apology. Quinn Scherer and uh, Ruth Ann Garlock, one of the books that's in back there, Praying Prodigals Home, they share the story of a mom whose, whose young son, uh, Ken, came to faith in Jesus Christ at age eight Uh, but later rejected his faith and walked away from God, became angry and bitter toward God. And his mom describes how she and her husband related to their son while he was far from God. She said, we learned some lessons in loving unconditionally and in loving the unlovely, she said. We learned not to preach, but simply to trust our God. God kept telling us we should talk to him more about Ken and less to Ken about him. Ken's life was becoming deplorable, but we kept loving and praying. Eventually, he began to trust us not to preach to him or condemn him, and he would turn to us when he was hurting. Once he called and and was hinting for us to pray for him, then one day we had the courage to ask if we could pray for him, and he allowed us to. That was a real breakthrough. She went on to say that as they prayed for God to direct 
Christian friends into Ken's life, God did just that. Ken began to attend church with them, ultimately repented, recommitted his life to Christ after 25 years away from God, and his life began to change. The key is demonstrating unconditional love and grace toward the person while not condoning or enabling their sinful behavior. What we're trying to do is leave the door open for that child to come back home in God's timing. I don't recommend uh, the, the practice that, that I've seen happen, and I understand why it happens. I don't recommend uh, disowning a child, uh, turning them out and saying, You're, you disgust me. You know, I, I want nothing to do with you anymore. You're not my son or your daughter because of what you've done. That comes out of anger. And, and as we know, uh, anger does not often accomplish God's purposes. Uh, we need to be parents that uh, demonstrate unconditional grace and love uh, while we don't condone or, or uh, enable a sinful behavior. Well, repentance and, and reinstatement. Repentance is a, a key in the process here. The younger brother expressed a hard attitude of repentance and, and brokenness over his sin. In verse 21, he says, Father, I've sinned against heaven, and, and uh, in that day you wouldn't use the name of God. That's why God isn't in here. What he's saying is, is uh, I've sinned against, uh, against God and before you. Uh, but they'll, they'll use the term heaven because uh, out of reverence they didn't use the, the name God. Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. You notice how the father cuts off his little elevator speech? He had more than that, didn't he? He had rehearsed this. He was thinking it through on his way back home, stumbling along that dusty road. And the uh, father cut him off. He didn't, he didn't wait to hear. The father said, said to his servants, bring quickly the, the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hands and shoes on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let us eat and celebrate for this. My son was dead. He's alive again. He was lost. He's found. And they began to celebrate. You see, the father immediately responded to his repentance with forgiveness and reinstatement. That's how God responds to us. He responds to our, for, our repentance with forgiveness and reinstatement into the family. Notice here, too, that the robe and the rings and the shoes were, were marks of this son's reinstatement into the family. Uh, servants in that day did not wear robes and rings and shoes. So it's much more than just getting him some appropriate clothing that will cover up his pigsty clothes. It, it's much more than that. It, it is, these things are marks of his reinstatement into the family. Everyone who saw what that father did would say, he's receiving him back into the family again. He's not going to be a hired hand. He's not going to be something less. The father is saying, this is my son, and, and he's part of my family, and I love him unconditionally. And, and what we can learn from that is lesson number four is that repentance alone triggers God's forgiveness and reinstatement into his family. Notice that the father received him as he was without regard to his stinky pig smell. He didn't say, why don't you clean yourself up a little bit first and then we'll, go, and then we'll talk about it. He didn't say either, well, I'm going to have to put you on probation for six months uh, to make sure your performance makes you worthy to be back in the family. None of that. Repentance triggered his forgiveness and his grace. Same with us. God doesn't grade on the curve. 
God's forgiveness does not depend on our performance or our worthiness. It's a free gift of God's grace. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 tells us, For by grace are you saved through faith. It's not of your own doing. It's the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one can boast. And then we have the elder brother and the angry confrontation. The elder son, you notice, refused even to go into the party. That in itself was a a public dishonor and disgrace for his dad. But just as he ran to the younger brother to embrace him, the father again extends grace and unconditional love to the elder brother. He goes outside. The scripture says he entreats him. He begs him to come into the party and celebrate. But the elder brother rebuked his own father with his angry response. He said, look. And and in that culture, uh, that was equivalent to look you with the finger stabbing his father in the chest. Look you. I have served you and I have never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. When this son of yours, he doesn't even identify him as his brother, this son of yours who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. So in a culture where uh, fathers were revered and, uh, and looked up to, and they were even addressed with titles like my esteemed father. That's the way sons would address their fathers. Uh, the way he came across in this instant would, would sound insolent. It would have been reprehensible way outside uh, the bounds of, it would have shocked and scandalized the people that, that Jesus was speaking to in, in that day. And his manner betrayed the reality in his heart that he was just as alienated from his father as the younger son had been by his own anger and his self-righteousness and his sense of entitlement, just as as much as his brother was by his overtly sinful behavior. You see, he could not receive his father's grace and love because he didn't think he needed it. He thought he already earned his father's reward. He thought because he had served his father diligently and done everything right, he deserved his father's reward, and, and he was entitled to it based on his performance. Who else in this story does that sound like? The Pharisees, right? Jesus was, was reaching out to the Pharisees in, in this story because he had never truly been able to receive his father's love, grace, and forgiveness. He was incapable of offering that to his younger brother. Either, and in the same way, the Pharisees were incapable of understanding how Jesus could extend love and grace to, to those uh, prostitutes and tax collectors because they had never received it themselves. And so they could not extend it to anyone else. So uh, lesson five, we need to forgive in order to empower our prayers and love unconditionally. Stormy O'Martian in, in uh, her book, The Power of Praying for Your Adult Children, says this, Forgiveness has to flow in us before the power of the Holy Spirit flows through us when we pray. The Bible says, If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear. We, we need to forgive those who are prodigal in our lives, we need to forgive our spouse or somebody else who's, who's been involved in their life. And, and we need to forgive, last of all, we need to forgive ourselves because God, for what we, for what we have or, or haven't done. Lesson six, celebrate the small wins and wait patiently on God for the rest. You know, when we pray for a loved one and we begin to see change in their lives, we tend to expect it to happen all at once. Uh, we want all the bad habits and the sinful behaviors to drop away in, 
in a 24-hour period, and, and then uh, uh, we want them immediately to begin attending church on a regular occasion and, and uh, maybe to be involved in a midweek Bible study, to have daily devotions and memorize Scripture and do all the other disciplines that, that, you know, that come in a, a mature Christian life. But my experience is that's not how the Holy Spirit works. He transforms people a, a little bit at a time, uh, over time, as we pray. And uh, sometimes we need to be careful that our expectations don't get out ahead of the, the Holy Spirit, that we wait patiently for him to work. Quinn Shearer, again, says uh, about the journey of transformation and the Holy Spirit setting the pace. She says, I realized and knew how counterproductive it is for us to expect prodigals to attend church when their hearts aren't yet ready. Many of them believe that they'll only be rejected by people in church anyway, so why bother to go? As in the parable, first the prodigal must come to himself. Then he's ready to go to the Father's house. Well, there are a couple different flavors of being lost in this parable. Jesus' point is that whether we're engaged in the overtly sinful lifestyle that the younger brother was, or or the secretly sinful attitudes of the heart like the older brother, the self-righteousness, the unforgiveness. He says, uh, we're equally lost. Both these brothers rejected their father in, in very different ways, but they were both equally lost in that they were both alienated from their father's grace and love because of their heart attitudes. And notice, too, that Jesus left this story unfinished, didn't he? Only the younger brother went into the celebration, didn't he? He left us hanging. And more correctly, he left the Pharisees hanging uh, because um, the only one who didn't go into the celebration after, after the father begged him to was that older brother. He was never reconciled to his father, never entered into the celebration. And, and like the other elder brother, the Pharisees relied on their standing as Jews and their, their external conduct, just like the elder brother. I did everything right. I checked off all the boxes. I did everything you said, so you should let me in. That's not the way it works. It, it, it is God's grace that we need, and we need a, a heart attitude of repentance and uh, coming to Christ and accepting God's unconditional grace and love. Jesus was reaching out to the Pharisees through this parable to save them with God's grace and love, but they rejected him because they thought they could be their own savior. They thought they'd already earned it. They thought they already deserved it, and so they remain lost. Well, it has something to say about the way that we live out Christ's grace and love in the church. Let me ask you a question. As his representatives in this world do we as the church attract the same kinds of people that he did? And, and if not, why not? Uh, could it be that sometimes we unconsciously, inadvertently protect, uh, project an elder brother uh, attitude toward uh, people that are different from us or people that come to us in their brokenness and, uh, and don't look uh, like we do yet? The Holy Spirit continually reminds me that the the church is not a country club for holy people. It's an ER for broken people. And and we're all broken people, saved by God's grace alone. Well, practical, practical prevention. What are some things that we can do as parents? You can't prevent a person from making a bad choice when they're on their own and they choose to make it. But, But we can reduce the likelihood of that by being godly parents. And, and part of that is living out an authentic life with God before your children. Uh, the, the number one thing I see when uh, research is done on why 
Christian kids leave their faith at some point in their lives is that they cite a lack of authenticity. It didn't seem real to me. It didn't seem real to my parents. There were a lot of religious trappings, uh, but if it isn't real, I, I jettison that as soon as I leave the house. So um, the first thing we can do is live out that authentic life. Let them see you read the Bible. Let them, pray. Let them see you pray and pray with them. Talk about what you're learning from God. Uh, talk about family around the table, family answers to prayer. What, what are you learning from God? How is he helping you grow? Uh, Deuteronomy tells us, And these words I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise. Teach, them, uh, teach your kids how to cultivate their relationship with God and, and lead them to faith in Christ. Don't leave it to someone else. Uh, Debbie uh, Wright and her crew downstairs are our partners in raising our kids, but it, it's not their job. It, it's our job to do those things. The guys in the Every Man a Warrior groups are, are learning how to, uh, the, the basic knowledge and skill to walk with, guy, with God from day to day so that they can transfer it to other guys and to their own kids in their family. Teach your kids to study the Bible. Teach them how to pray. Teach them how to grow in their own life with God so that they can fish for themselves so they can be self-sufficient when they leave our house. Deliberately cultivate a relationship with each child that includes two-way communication. And I think that involves setting aside regular one-on-one time with each child to build closeness and trust in the relationship. Closeness is a function of time and attention on our part. The, the level of closeness that a child has with his or her father greatly impacts their self-image and eventually their own relationship with God, Lonnie Berger says in Every Man a Warrior. And then focus on training our kids rather than controlling them. He says, instead of focusing on controlling our teenagers, our focus should be on their training, their ability to think, their capacity to make good decisions without our help. This way, over time, they gain experience in learning the consequences, both good and bad, of those decisions. This is also the road to becoming a self-sufficient adult. What we see in the research is that an overemphasis on control makes it more likely that young people will reject our values and our faith and make a left turn uh, when they leave our homes and we won't see them again until they're 30 with two kids. Learn how to pray for them more effectively and then pray for them every day. This is really important. This isn't window dressing. This is the heart and soul of what we're supposed to be doing as parents. Philippians 4, 6, and 7 is one of my favorite verses. Uh, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And and, uh, the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. That's a parent's prayer if ever I, I heard one. You can also come to the Thursday night prayer session, and we will help you lift up your kids or your your prodigal, whoever they may be, in, in prayer. Educate yourself to help your young people overcome specific kinds of struggles as they arrive. If your child becomes entangled in pornography, drug or alcohol abuse, uh, depression, an abusive relationship, if uh, they're entertaining an alternative uh, sexual orientation, for example, and I'm not making this stuff up, all these things are, are issues that parents in this church deal with. If your child is dealing with one of those things, there are resources to help you understand those issues and how to address them in your family. Don't flounder around. Learn what to do. Very often the way we respond can determine whether our child can overcome that issue. Uh, 
and move on in life or whether it will become a debilitating hindrance to their life as a child of God. Get support from other people. Don't go it alone. Find others who will support and encourage and pray for you and your child. And then finally, recognize that we're in a war, folks. We're in a spiritual battle. Satan is coming after your kids and, and mine. And, and so uh, the prize in that battle is really the hearts and minds of our kids. The great battle of our spiritual lives, Jim Cimbala says, the great battle of our spiritual lives is will you believe? It is not will you try harder or can you make yourself worthy? It is squarely a matter of believing that God will do what only he can do. And so we, we need to release our, our prodigals and our loved ones uh, to God. And we need to pray for them continuously and trust God to, to do uh, what only he can do in their lives. Let's pray, shall we? Dear Father, I, I lift up to you this morning uh, everyone here who has a, a prodigal in their lives uh, or, is, or is themselves far from God. Uh, Lord, there are so many who are away from home in that they're away from you and they've created distance between you and, and them. And, and Lord, uh, uh, we thank you that you pursue us uh, with intensity and with passion. We thank you that you rejoice when we turn back to you. And I'd ask uh, this morning, you, you told us that you would give us wisdom when we ask for it. And so I ask that you give wisdom and understanding uh, to those parents whose hearts are broken this morning uh, because they're dealing with a child who's far from you or, or some other prodigal, a spouse or a, a friend or a relative, a parent uh, who is far from you. Give them wind, wisdom and understanding as how, how to best relate to them, how to demonstrate to them that love of Christ and that unconditional grace. Uh, while they come alongside that person in prayer. And, and Lord, I pray that you'd release your power into each of those lives and that you would orchestrate circumstances in those lives uh, to turn them back to you. We pray all these things, Lord, in the powerful name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.